I'm Katherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. On May 6th, the Indiana Daily Student published an article about the alleged cover-up of abuse at Hope Presbyterian. A few days later, the Roy's Report also did an article on Dan Heron in the cover-up. On May 14th, the CIP met again for executive session. Afterwards, they issued a public statement saying that Dan Heron was going to be brought up on charges in the ecclesiastical court and that during the trial, he would be suspended from all official functions as a teaching elder. After this ruling, Kara and Abigail and I had another conversation. Due to the timing of the two articles prior to this ruling and the fact that the ruling had been thrown out before, it's likely the media had a hand in bringing this about. Though justice is not yet complete and there is still a long way to go for the victims, this is promising news. Media has and does play a role in achieving justice. Consider the role the media played in the Larry Nassar case, the George Floyd trial, and the Me Too movement. But going public is not at all easy, and it definitely opens victims up to experiencing more trauma. However, abusers and those who protect them will often seek to discredit a victim by attacking their character. Next time you see this happening, ask yourself what it costs the victim to come forward and what they must have been willing to lose for one shred of hope that justice could happen. I'd also like to ask you to help keep the media attention going on this case. Share these episodes with everyone you know, especially if they are affiliated with the Presbyterian Church in America. For this episode, it's important to know the Presbyterian Church government structure. There's the session, which is the local church government, followed by the presbytery, which is the regional government, then the GA, or General Assembly, which is the national government. We also mention an organization called GRACE. GRACE is an organization that consults on issues of sexual abuse in Christian communities. I will link to the articles about this case in the show notes. I will also include a link to two episodes where I interviewed a representative from Grace. Here is the final interview of this multi-part episode. Oh my gosh, you guys. I could not believe this outcome. This is crazy. How are you feeling? I mean, I just, I'm so thankful. And I mean, I also wonder why this wasn't in the cards the first time around. But or the second time. Exactly. But I am thankful that we at least have a chance to have our day in court trial testify. But yeah, I've been feeling really thankful and really relieved, honestly, the past couple days. What about you, Kara? I think it took a couple of days for it to sink in for me fully. I guess I would say I'm cautiously optimistic because technically this is the third time that this presbytery has claimed that this case is going to trial. In our email communication this week, you said that you felt like the media had an impact on this outcome being different this time. I think so, yeah. What made you say that? Just because well, it because well, when we didn't go public for the first almost two years of this, they pretty much took every opportunity to sweep this under the rug that they could. And then when so it was after we recorded our podcast, the Indiana Daily Student, our local Bloomington student 
led paper actually picked up the story and ran it. A very detailed investigative report that just exposed everything. They even had a, a comment from Dan submitted to them in writing several paragraphs about how he was innocent. This was a vicious, cruel attempt by a very small number of people to destroy his family, tear apart this church in this community. That independent investigation had been conducted and had found him innocent, he said. And he was confident that this time around, our allegations would be proven false. So very, very many oh. false statements. I feel like there should have been an arrested development narrator kind of like falling up behind him. He's like, I'm innocent. He wasn't. It's a small number of people coming forward. It wasn't. I will be proven innocent again. He wasn't. Like, I, I just picture Ron Howard. Yeah, he put that all in writing, several paragraphs of it. He couldn't help himself. If I were his representation, I would have told him to just say no comment. Well, yeah, and like the whole like grandiose personality type of the narcissist, like he's like he's totally, totally. You said that I didn't. It, totally exhibiting it publicly for sure. So you think that the media had impacts? So there, there was the uh, Indiana article that came out. Then there was the Julie Roy's article that came out. Yeah, same. That movie. happened shortly afterwards. And so that came out, and then I mean the Julie Rose came out on Thursday, right? And then the vote was on Friday. Yep. So did you think that that was going to happen in the vote? Or are you, were you pretty sure as it's gotten dismissed twice, there's no way it's going to, it's going to. I was honestly terrified and afraid to get my hopes up. I just, you know, after having had our hopes gotten up so many times only to have them dashed, you know, the ridiculousness of Dan getting to vote on his own case and getting to put a motion on the floor and make you guys don't get to vote. Right. You guys don't get to. Right. And making extended speeches in his own defense, but us getting slandered without being there to defend ourselves. Yeah, that is that is just like the number one way that the system does not support victims. It just right. It's just obviously you guys have to have an advocate there for you, whereas he can advocate for himself as much as he wants to and be in the room when all of this is happening. Well, it's funny you mentioned this because the reporter for the Indiana Daily Student actually told me that he was expecting an outpouring of angry emails from people saying, how dare you publish a story that makes a man look bad? Because normally that's the response he gets when he writes something like this. It's been dead silent. Wow. Many People criticizing him for publishing this. Like no one seems surprised or shocked or willing to, to say anything in Dan's defense. He was just expecting a certain level of backlash that he hasn't gotten. So maybe like being in a small town, the the word has gone out about Dan too. Well, we're fairly certain that's true because at least one of the witnesses that spoke to the new committee was someone who was not even affiliated with the church at all and had interacted with Dan locally. And she had some stories. Yeah. We also managed to dig up a witness from 2012 when none of us were even in Bloomington. So we've never met this person in our life. And he was able to independently corroborate a bunch of stuff and also establish a pattern of behavior that goes all the way back to when the church was first founded. He was also able to produce emails that implicate several elders in the presbytery from way back when, where they had received multiple complaints and letters from victims and had, well, not only not addressed the problem, but had also told the victims, this is being dealt with by the presbytery, corrective action is being taken. The presbytery was told nothing about it. A lot of them are finding out about this stuff for the first time. So he has he has evidence that they have been told before all of this. Yep. Mm. What about the overall presbytery? Have you heard anything about the overarching presbytery, what they're thinking? 
So they went into what's called executive session for that meeting. And that basically means super secret hush hush boys club business. So we're tech officially not allowed to really know what went on in that meeting or what they're all thinking. Got it. What about just like presbyteries across the United States? Well, one elder in a presbytery publicly stated on the Julie Roy's article that there are several presbyteries looking to step, try to step in and have the General Assembly take jurisdiction of this case. Mm. And, and I have had elders in many, many presbyteries and non-elders, women especially, express grave displeasure at the way that the, our presbyteries handled this situation. Some people already had some reservations about the PCA, but we've heard of people who after hearing about our whole case and how it was handled, are fairly certain they're going to be leaving the PCA for good, which is encouraging. Sadly, I just hope, I don't, I just, I don't know. I'm just like, in, in terms of like expected outcome, I, I don't know of a case in the PCA right now that's this public, or I have heard, I haven't heard of one. And there is a lot of there's just a lot of this going on. And, and for the similar reasons that you guys have experienced, just like people filing charges and getting dismissed because there's not enough evidence, just the fact that someone is reaching out and saying, hey, this happened, like they're not even investigating. They say they're going to ask questions. They don't. They say they're going to contact the victims. They don't. And, and just th that's happening a lot in the PCA, but just because of the way that the system is set up. So I just hope that this is <laughs> just a wake up call to the entire you know, PCA, like there's something rotten in this system and the way that it's being set up that is not supporting victims and is really actually just, it's just created to protect the pastors and protect the, the abusive pastors. On May 26th, the day part two of this episode launched, I reached out to the General Assembly. This is the National Administrative Governing Body of the PCA, emailing the officers and several heads of committees I sent them the two episodes and I asked them specifically if they wanted to comment on the pattern of abuse and cover-up in Presbyterian churches. I received two responses within 48 hours. While the two gentlemen who responded sent me information on a study the PCA was doing on how they handled domestic abuse cases, they seemed unaware of any systemic issues. When I responded to their response with clarification on my concern, I did not receive a response in return. Since cases of abuse, and I know of more than one in different presbyteries, are being stopped and covered up at the presbytery level, it's possible those at the GA level have no idea this is going on. Well, now they do. The system is not designed to support the victims. It is designed to protect the pastors. But no matter what system is used, a system is only as good as the people in it. If the members of that system are corrupt, there is no system in the world that will prevent abuse of power and re-traumatizing victims. There is one key difference in this go-around, this third time around, that makes me feel slightly more optimistic than I have before. What is that? So I don't know if you read the report, but not only did the Presbytery vote to send this to trial, but they also voted to suspend Dan from yes. his elder office for the duration of the trial, which means he's not allowed to preach He's not allowed to administer the sacraments and he's not allowed to participate in church government right now. So no more voting on his own case, no more putting motions on the floor, no more making speeches on his own behalf. Also, no more supply preaching everywhere so that I get re-traumatized every time I go to a PCA website and his face pops up in the preaching slots. I know he was a top candidate for a lot of senior pastor positions this past year 
in the PCA. But he's not working right now because he resigned, right? Well, he's not in ministry right now. He does have a, a non-ministry job that he's working. Got it. He works in a fitness lab. But I know that is a huge, 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 huge difference because they haven't done that for any of the proceedings before. He's also been on a paid sabbatical for the past year, so they're not hurting at all. Of course. But yeah, that's a big difference. They hadn't done that up to that point. I feel like they should have done that a long time ago, but I'm glad they're doing it now because part of the problem has been the way he's been able to use his power and his privilege to manipulate the case, whereas we don't have that kind of power or ability. So this will help uh, level the playing field a little bit. A little bit. Yes. It's still going to be his colleagues judging the case. So I'm a little concerned about that. Uh, I know. Right. The jury will be everyone in the presbytery, probably some makeup of people in the presbytery. And I mean, yeah, that is definitely biased, but I just hope they at least try their best to not be biased, even though it seems impossible. And I don't think the CIP should be doing this trial, but I'm at least happy that there is one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as like, if this was what I was expecting or not, or if I was optimistic about it, like, I mean, I am kind of a hopeless optimist. And I, even after all this, I was still hopeful that something good would happen after this meeting. But what I was not expecting at all was the suspension, because I think I had given up a long time on them curbing his power in any way, just because they acted like their hands were tied, even though they weren't up until now. And so seeing that really feels like a new direction. Here are Kate's thoughts on the CIP ruling. What did you think of the outcome, like the public statement? Yeah, uh, the one from last week? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm i really encouraged and kind of surprised that they chose to suspend him and that they finally saw the strong presumption of guilt that has been clearly there all along. I, it's still, so it's a, it's a win in a sense, but it still just feels so backwards because now there's the trial happening within the same small biased presbytery and they're doing the, you know, investigating again, making the victims face it all again. And, you know, it's just backwards. Like if, if he's guilty from the trial, then they bring in an independent investigation. It just, it doesn't make sense. Do you think that the media attention had an impact on this decision? I do. Yeah, I'm thankful for the coverage and for this and just for for people to be able to hear what actually happened. Right. Yeah, but it is still the same people making that decision. Exactly. If you could give a recommendation for what needs to happen from here on out, what would you what would you say it needs to be? Yeah, I think Grace needs to be brought in now or someone like them to investigate. And I think that there needs to be consequences for those that covered this up. And I think that the victims and their care needs to be thought of before a press release is thought of or how to cover their own (laughs) agenda. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I think they need to be thinking about the victims this time. What are you hoping for, expecting for, in terms of just outcome of this trial whenever it does happen. I don't think he should be able to go back and be a pastor or an elder after all of this has happened. I mean, I think it's a pattern of some ongoing behavior since the early days of this church plant. And he's shown no remorse or repentance for any of it, denied all of it, 
attacked people and slandered people every step of the way. So I don't see any way in which this could turn around and he could somehow be corrected and then reinstated or only temporarily suspended and then reinstated. So yeah, I'm definitely hoping that his days in ministry will be over after this just for the safety of other people in the PCA. Yeah, that's what I think. I'm hoping for that as well, because yeah, Abigail makes excellent points there. And also it's for his own good. Nobody acts up that badly that long if they're happy and self-fulfilled in what they're doing. Ministry just isn't a good fit for him. So honestly, I don't think they're doing him any favors by enabling his behavior and continuing to encourage him to stay in ministry. So it's not up to me, but in my opinion, I, I do think that he needs to be ministered to by these people and, you know, he needs to work with them. And as far as restoration, restoration to the so-called body of Christ, fine. Restoration to ministry, that's a privilege. That's not an entitlement. And I feel like he has very much abused that privilege. And so I think that they should instead focus on working him through self-reflection, changes in his behavior, but also be helping him transition into a non-ministry job. That's mm-hmm. what I, if they really love him and they really care about him as their brother, then that's the path that this should take. I fully expect that if he gets convicted, he'll most likely, because I think the sentencing happens later. I fully expect that he will at some point turn on the crocodile tears and claim that he's sorry and repentant. But I feel like that uh, those claims of repentance would have a lot more meaning if they happened before he got mm-hmm. caught. I hope they don't fall for that, but I imagine that a lot of them will be looking for that. And I also wonder if there will be some sort of plea bargain he'll work out. So I don't know, especially since they're planning to bring in Grace to investigate at his own insistence if there's a guilty verdict. Here's Kate again. What do they have to lose by siding with victims or listening and believing victims? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that they are afraid to accept the truth because of what it means about maybe wrong that they've done or systems that they've had in place that haven't protected people. And there there might be ownership that they're not willing to take on their part. And I know often they view themselves as the accused elder and they don't think they ever would have done it. So it feels, it feels more personal, I think. Like they're putting themselves in the pastor's shoes. Like, what if these exactly. allegations came against me? Yes. Yeah. And if, if we believe these victims, if this happens to me, other people will believe the victims and I'll be falsely accused out of my job. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I know the this presbytery, they, like, argued, you know, if we bring in Grace to investigate this, then... Every case that has these types of allegations, we're going to have to hire Grace and bring them in. And they always side with the victims. Like, they use that as a bad <laughs> example. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, they because they're victim-centric, we don't want them. Exactly. I guess this is speculation, but I figure the way that he worded it, he assumed he wasn't going to get convicted and that this wouldn't even move to trial. So he was basically stalling it out so that Grace would never get involved. Got it. Got yeah, it. that's okay. my speculation. I don't know that for sure. Okay. Do you have any hopes for this podcast? Anything that you are hoping to say with this? 
Well, I hope that people will educate themselves about abuse, especially church abuse, because I think there is a lot of ignorance and a misunderstanding about what constitutes abuse and what constitutes like a brother between brother conflict. I hope that people are going to be made more aware that this is a problem and that it is a widespread problem. I hope that people will learn to advocate for themselves maybe in this podcast, even if it's difficult, that they know that they're worth fighting for and that they can advocate for themselves and that they have options. But those primarily are the things that I'm hoping that will happen with this podcast. How about you, Abigail? One thing is just for people listening to remember, like, if you ever have a friend or a colleague or someone come forward with their story about abuse or harassment or assault, to believe them because you can just hear in our story how difficult it's been for us to come forward and how much struggle we faced with telling our stories and how people like either they don't believe us or if they do they don't think it's bad enough to really mean anything and so I just want people to know to believe women because when you're coming forward it's a terrifying terrifying experience and we're too often not believed and also for people who do have any sort of power or leadership in churches to, like Kara said, like educate yourself on abuse in the church and how to make sure one, you're not doing this to people and two, you're not allowing people close to you to do it and like apologizing for them and allowing it to continue and perpetuate. And if you're in a church where women aren't allowed to have a vote or have any say in church leadership or governance to highly consider changing that as well. Give women a voice. You know, I don't, I understand that there are deeply held beliefs about a woman's place in the church. I get that. But even if you don't make them pastors or elders, I don't know, make up a title, elderettes, something just, I mean, we need to have a voice. We need to have a vote because, you know, you've seen in the example of Kate, you know, despite her courage and her wisdom, how easy it was for them to silence her voice and the consequences that had and the devastation. I honestly think that if women had more of a voice in church government and church polity, that this would go a lot differently. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for anyone who might be like questioning that aspect of it, okay, maybe, you know, pastor or elder, maybe, maybe that's how those verses should be interpreted that that should be held by a man or, but there is no place in scripture that says women should be kept out of the room, that women should not have a voice, that women should not have a vote. That is nowhere. That is all a male constructed, male centric constructed principle, even for the good, 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 good men (laughs) who are in these denominations and totally support women and think that they don't, and don't care what office a woman holds, they get sucked into this argument. And nowhere, like if you're trying to be biblical, nowhere does it say that a woman can't be a part of those conversations and can't vote. There, there's no Yeah. Way. I think one important thing to remember is that, especially in the Reformed Protestant tradition, the Bible is considered to be the inspired and fallible word of God. Okay. The book of church order is not. Exactly. I think that's just a very crucial distinction and needs to be heavily reevaluated. Well, I will definitely say in studying abuse and the abuse that happens in churches, I was never like gung-ho, complimentarian, but I've definitely swung to that. That's this is not okay. Like the fact that women are barred 
from these meetings and barred from these situations, it just perpetuates so much abuse. And even if we not, get appointed as advisors, they can just strike us from the record if we dissent from the men. Decide whether or not they want to listen. Right. And that's a problem. There's no accountability there. And that's not, I, in my opinion, that's not biblically justified. And also there's, there's a cost here. So if people are listening to this and they're starting to tense up, be like, no, Paul is clear. Paul is clear. Okay. I know. I know. <laughs> calm down. Calm down. No. At the very least, I would ask, you know, these people, especially men who are listening, who are clenching up, just take a breath and count the cost. Okay, because these decisions have costs, high costs, and we are seeing that now, not just in the PCA, but in church everywhere. And we need to consider what hills are worth dying on. And we need to consider the cost for people who are vulnerable and marginalized in our communities and not just women, but others as well. And that's what we need to be thinking about right now. Yes. And if you're following doctrine that you consider to be biblical and you're dying on that, this is biblical sword, but then that doctrine is leading to pain and leading to victims being ignored and silenced, then okay, maybe there's nothing wrong with the Bible. Maybe there's something wrong with us and the way that we're interpreting and applying that. And that needs to be that pain needs to be a sign that something is wrong and right you evaluate from i that. just have a really hard time thinking that jesus would be okay with this especially given how he tended to interact with women yeah well you guys have just been doing this for so long and this has been a huge burden that you've been carrying advocating for yourselves fighting for yourselves and also having experienced the trauma of his abuse on top of that do you have anything that you want to say to other victims who are potentially fighting or currently fighting or thinking about fighting? I don't want to sound naively optimistic because, I mean, this whole experience has been really long and horrible, honestly, but at the risk of sounding cheesy, I guess, I mean, there's always a chance for justice to take place and we don't know if that's going to happen for us but if you do decide to take the risk and come forward, there, there is always hope that something can happen. And not only are you taking that step for yourself, but also for any others who may be at risk or who have experienced the same thing and just don't realize that they have or don't feel like they can come forward because they think they're the only one. I would say agree with that. And also number one, if you're out there and you're in that situation, you are not alone. I've gotten so many letters from all over the country from PCA people who have experienced similar things. If you're thinking about coming forward, you should know that it's worthwhile, but it's incredibly costly. Typically in a lot of ways, there's an emotional cost, a time cost, just you need to be prepared to lose a lot, potentially your church family. If you work in ministry, it could affect your livelihood. And so ultimately you need to make the decision that's healthiest for you and your family, what you think is going to help you heal and move forward. If that means coming forward and speaking out, great. But if you find that it's actually best to just walk away from the situation, that's okay. There's no judgment. What happened was not your fault. It's not your fault that it's continuing. These are deeply rooted issues in the PCA system and they're not going to go away overnight. And 
if you're not in a position where you feel like you're in it for the long haul and prepared to fight a system that is not even designed to protect you, it's totally understandable if you need to just walk away and heal on your own. If you are wanting to come forward, I recommend that you connect with people who have done that or are in the process of doing that so you can kind of get practicality. I would read the book of church order cover to cover. I know it's boring, but do it. Talk to elders that are friendly to you. Do not just talk to any elders, but if people are safe to talk to about this, they can give you helpful perspectives and also can advocate for you, especially if you're a woman. I would talk to an attorney. Absolutely. Don't buy into any of that crap about not getting lawyers involved because they certainly will when it's in their favor. And basically arm yourself, arm yourself with knowledge, arm yourself with wisdom and be ready because you're in for the fight of your life if you try to take on this system. I'm sorry, but it's true. I would also say that you're welcome to reach out to me or uh, Abigail, is that okay? Also? Mm -hmm. Oh yes. You can always (laughs) reach out to either of us. Yeah. I didn't want to volunteer you as tribute, but both of us have been doing our bumbling best to work with other people who are in similar situations and try to help them as best as we can. And we are willing to listen to people and we are willing to give help whenever we can, although we're not attorneys and we're not therapists. So disclaimer there, but yeah. Disclaimer. Yeah. Feel free to reach out. Yeah, I, when I interviewed Julie Royce, she was just talking about how many people have come to her and asked that, that her to do their story, but then they weren't willing to put their name on it, which is totally fine because it is, like you said, a huge cost. And sometimes you just, I mean, it's just, you just have to get out of bed in the morning and that's all you can do. And that's the only thing you can do. But when witnesses are willing to come forward, victims, because you guys are victims, not just witnesses, come forward and put your name on it. Like that is where progress happens. When Excuse me, Catherine, we are accusers. <laughs> not victims. According to church polity. Yes. <laughs> is that the official like media yes. language too? Like you can't use no, media? No, that's the official PCA language. In book of church order, it's always accusers. But the book okay. of church order also isn't set up, to be honest, to deal with abuse victims. So. Exactly or abuse situations at all. But yeah, I I think the term victim implies that the accused did something wrong. Yeah. Fortunately, you are right, Catherine. We understand the fear of coming forward by name and the shelter of anonymity, but you're going to get a lot more traction if you're willing to put your name on it. And that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Well, thank you guys for being willing to put your name on it. Thank you for sharing your story. And I just hope to be able to do this do this justice and I think you guys are super brave thanks so much for joining us today uncertain is the affiliate podcast of tears of eden a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 